Ben Miller at Alpha Depot now with Jim Pearson, Jack Colby. They asked about the noon train. The noon train? And that ain't all. Hey, pardon, Frank Miller. Please, Will. If you just tell me what this is all about. Sent a man up five years ago for murder. He was supposed to hang. Now he's free. I'll give you odds. Kane's dead five minutes after Frank gets off the train. Some of you were special deputies when we broke this bunch. I need you again. You're asking an awful lot, Kane, considering the kind of man Frank Miller is. We all know what Miller's like. That's why I'm here. How about it? You don't have to be a hero, not for me. I'm not trying to be a hero. If you think I like this, you're crazy. You risk your skin catching killers, and the juries turn them loose so they can come back and shoot at you again. And in the end, you wind up dying all alone on some dirty street. Welcome to Worth Watching Inspirational Movies, where we're talking about a movie that inspired another movie. In this case, the 1952 film High Noon, which inspired Outland. I'm your host, and I'm disappointed that nobody in this movie blew up like a balloon. <laughs> My co-host is Guy, who keeps trying to figure out whether he's the good, the bad, or the ugly. <laughs> well, sorry, Guy, but if you have to ask. <laughs> so uh, I was thinking about uh, the story Pendulet told, like, you know, he went on Bill Maher. Maybe he'd been on Bill Maher many times. But one time he went on Bill Maher, and before the show, he was talking to him, and he said, you know, kind of weird. I mean, usually you have a nut on the show and all the other guests seem really reasonable. Uh, you know, what's what's the deal? Who's the nut? <laughs> and Bill Maher just uh, stared uh, at him. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 so uh, context for this film, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, there's a lot actually to talk about with this film. So I'll talk about a number of things we go through. The one is... It was controversial because John Wayne was originally offered the role and he turned it down. And he and, and other and this is the time this film came out was the time when the blacklisting and and such was going on and you know, anti communism stuff and everything, which is a whole complicated story. But John Wayne felt because the the main creator of of this movie is, is someone who eventually got like run out of the country uh, on the idea that he was a communist. And John Wayne turned down the role and and was happy to help run this guy out of the country. And he was really against Gary Cooper playing the role, but also they were really good friends. So you have this weird thing where. Gary Cooper does the movie. It wins a bunch of awards. It's very popular. And he is in Europe when the Oscars happen. So he asked John Wayne to accept the reward for him, which is, uh, which was a real conundrum because John Wayne hated this movie, but he loved his friend. I read a very little bit about this. And I think in his speech at the Oscars, he, uh, he basically focused on praising Gary Cooper himself, mm. uh, you know, instead of saying too much good about the movie. <laughs> well, he he did end by saying, oh, I got to talk to my agent about why I didn't get this movie. <laughs> so it's kind of funny, especially since everybody <laughs> listening knew <laughs> how he felt about it. So it's kind of amusing. Ned, <laughs> uh, we may as well uh, mention the reason why he didn't like it, which was 
the screenwriter, at some point he gave up being a communist. He was a former communist and still a, a fellow traveler in many ways, though though I, I read that the split between this, well, not even the split between the Soviets and the Nazis, but the original alliance uh, with, together uh, with them prior to the split between them. You know, he objected to that. He He disliked the Nazis even before the Soviet Union allied with them. Anyway, he was uh, upset about the whole thing, so he gave up his political communism, but he still uh, had thought along the same lines, I think. So anyway, he wrote this screenplay as sort of an allegory with the House Un-American Activities Committee being the evil Frank Miller gang, (laughs) uh, you know, and Gary Cooper being uh, the noble... Uh, left-leaning screenwriters who were being unjustly persecuted for possibly being communists. And, uh, you know, it's, I think if nothing else, you can perhaps see in retrospect that that was not something that a lot of Americans would intuitively grasp about this <laughs> screenplay. That is not the only way to interpret the, the meanings and symbolism of the movie by far. And I think most people didn't. Do yeah, it and I, I think uh, an interesting thing about this movie, I, I, so, you know, it has, over time, been treated as one of the, you know, best movies ever, one of the top 25 or, or something. And, you know, I think that's probably not true, but but I think it is a movie that has so many things you can talk about and argue about and have different interpretations, and I think that's interesting. Um and also, you know, that whole blacklisting, you know, House on Un-American Activities, et cetera, period is so interesting because my understanding at this point, it, it, you know, I grew, when I grew up, you know, my understanding was on a very left-wing basis, like this is all evil, et cetera. And yes, what's-his-face who was waving his hundreds of names or whatever, he was lying about them. He didn't have a list of names. You know, he was a terrible, terrible person. Um, oh yeah, yeah. McCarthy, McCarthy was lying and and you know ruining people's lives, and he was a terrible person. Uh, but on although ironically, he was very correct. Well, about, that's uh, just it. On one Hollywood end, there the were there were in fact. I mean, and who cares if Hollywood has been you know <laughs> who cares about Hollywood? But in the actual government, there were actual traitors who were on the payroll of the Soviet Union and were betraying the government. Mm-hmm. And so, on the one hand, he was, you know, right in a conceptually, even though he was actually pointing at a bunch of people, many of whom were, wasn't valid for, and he was ruining their lives and, and all this. And they they parodied that list, by the way, and uh, the Manchurian candidate, uh, where the uh, the guy who's running for president, he uh, he just makes up this list that he has, and he can't remember what number right, of names right. he which says. Is, which is very true. I mean, I'm trying to candidate. Man, that's a great film. I'd, <laughs> I'd love to cover that sometime. Oh, yeah. But, uh, and on the other hand, like when you look at Hollywood, like who cares if some screenwriter is a communist? Or even, you know, like they, at one point they accused Lucille Ball. And as was true for many people, it's like, well, Okay, during the Depression, they were kind of upset and, you know, maybe they went to some meetings or in Lucille Ball's case, her her dad or her grandfather was a committed communist and she just sort of went along with him, you know, whatever. And then all, and then right. decades later, she's being accused of this stuff. And it's like, you know, yeah, that, that stuff was ridiculous, right? Um, 
mean, yeah. the fact that people had their lives ruined and everything was was really tragic over that, even though there were actual serious people in the government who were attempting to undermine the government. And, you know, that was a, a real problem, right? So it's, yeah. a, it's a complicated situation. Uh, but I, I think what you said is true. Like, the average person watching this film would not be thinking any of that stuff, right? Yeah. And, and I think, at least for with regard to people who interpreted this as a sort of a pro-America, pro-American values show, to the extent that a lot of people interpreted it that way, um, I think this is another example of that. It's a phenomenon we've discussed before where, like, like Colonel Jessup, or Archie Bunker, you know, the character who's supposed to be the the mouthpiece of evil, and it ends up the audience loves him. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of the things, you know, I, I've seen it a couple of times, but until I was reading about it uh, for this, I hadn't realized this is a real-time movie, which had to be pretty unusual. Literally, you know, at the beginning, they're getting married, and 90 minutes later, there's a gunfight, and this movie is 90 minutes long. You know, so it it actually happens in real time, which is kind of interesting to think about it. It kind of makes it sort of experimental. Yeah. Also, it's actually about five minutes less than 90 minutes, so uh, even less than my you know, all artistic effort to be 90 minutes, so that's pretty amazing. <laughs> Let's see. So there'll be a lot more to talk about. An amazing cast. And as we do oh, get sure. through the cast, we'll talk about that. Just, you know, one of those cases where so either people who were experienced at the time or who would become huge later. It's, it's just one of those films. Anything else before we move into the film itself? I don't think so, no. Okay. So the first shot, I think, is very intentionally like a painting. You know, there's a we're on there's a horizon with a big tree and a horse and a man who's in silhouette and it you know really looks like a a painting and the guy's sitting on a rock smoking and uh so guy you can win the lottery right now if you answer who the actor is who's sitting on this rock and he's in the entire movie although he never has a line (laughs) and he's a worth watching favorite (laughs) i don't actually recall this scene but i'm going to guess because it's one of the first ones in the movie. Uh, I'm going to guess that's Lee Van Cleef. It is. And I did recognize him when I <laughs> wow, saw him. Wow, you did. So okay, amazing. That. And he's pretty young in this. He's not necessarily immediately <laughs> recognizable. Well, this is his first film role. He had done stage, and he got noticed, and that's how he got cast. And the amazing thing is the director wanted to give him Harvey's role, so that was Lloyd Bridges. But he said, your nose is too sinister, so you need to get surgery <laughs> to make your nose less sinister. <laughs> and Lee Van Cleef turned it down, so he ended up with this non-speaking role, which is, I mean, I respect, but that's an amazing thing to do, because Harvey's role is a significant role in a film that had, you know, mm-hmm. Gary Cooper, et cetera, right? So for an actor to say, I'm not going to get a nose job and take on a role that might define my career or start off my career is pretty amazing, but he refused it, and uh, and eventually we we got to thankful yeah. thanks to that we got to eventually see him and escape from New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully that uh, hopefully that sinister nose of his was what brought him uh, later. Yeah, he success. Had, he was in a lot of stuff. After this. Yeah, yeah. Some of the Clint Eastwood mm-hmm. westerns and uh, all kinds of things. Uh, actually, he is uh, now. I've seen some of them, but not all of them. He was in the 
Sergio Leone uh, picked him up from all this, and he was in The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, and all those other things, so, you know, uh, uh, which are right. also things I'd love to see sometimes. Again, I've like, you know, I think I've, some of them I've seen, some of them I've only seen a little bit of. Once Upon a Time in America I've seen, which is an amazing film um, that's worth covering. So anyway, again, another topic that would be worth worth getting into at some point. Oh, yeah. I've, I've seen some of those, uh, and they're, they're fun movies. They, uh, they have an interest, as I remember anyway, they had uh, an interesting balance of a sort of Western drama and more uh, whimsical, almost sometimes slapstick mm-hmm. stuff. But, uh, yeah, yeah, fun movies. And so, uh, so while leaving, Cleef is sitting on this rock. The theme song starts. It's uh, it, it was done for this movie. It's "Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling," and it has this very strong sort of drum beat in it, <laughs> kind of similar. So we did the Doctor Who story, the Gunfighters. You know, it's very controversial. There's a song in there that tells the story of the show as they go along and and it's uh, it's probably it's obviously kind of based on this and also in that story people like go crazy because it's so present in the story and it's not as bad here but <laughs> yeah i actually intended to ask you does this remind you of yeah. anything we saw in doctor <laughs> who except in my case i actually prefer the doctor <laughs> who song than this one I think the the music and the refrain is just a little. Yeah, catchier. actually, I, I think this isn't the greatest, but I do think you know it became sort of a popular song after that. And oh yeah, it's a song that I knew or was acquainted with well before I ever saw the movie. And I gotta I say, I and this was one of the issues with the one in Doctor Who, right? All the. Um, uh, I don't like a song that directly references like, oh, he's like, oh, I can't do anything until I kill Frank Miller, and it's like that shouldn't like. No, the song yeah. should be a little more <laughs> abstracted from things, right, than than actually telling the plot points of the movie. In my yeah, yeah. Uh, it works well in Blazing Saddles, <laughs> though, you know, because there's at least one reference to the specific content where it says Bart was his name <laughs> uh, in the lyrics. So uh, I think it works uh, excellently mm. there, but uh, that may be an exception. Yeah. <laughs> so another man approaches on a horse and they sit and hang out and eventually a third man approaches on a horse and they all saddle up and head off and they come to a small town and the church bell is ringing and some people in town are clearly scared of them but the bar owner is excited you know and he's like oh we're gonna have a big day today so <laughs> <laughs> And then we see in the, it's kind of the town hall slash marshal's building, you know, probably the marshal's office. We come back to that a lot in the movie. Gary Cooper mm-hmm. and Grace Kelly, um, Will Kane and Amy Fowler, I think, are getting married. Actually, I, I, I just wanted to mention here that there is a separate office. The, the marshal's office and Justice of the Peace are separate offices because we'll see signs mm-hmm. for both of them at various points in the show. Mm-hmm. That's all. So, the bride is Grace Kelly, and Grace Kelly's an amazing woman. This was her first big screen role. You know, she'd done stage and everything. Hmm. And she eventually became the Princess of Monaco. Uh, So, she had this weird career where this was her very first movie. She was criticized for her acting in this movie, and she agreed. 
And un- so, and she's mm. obviously a beautiful woman, right? So she could have got more movie roles without doing this. But unlike so many actors, instead of relying on her looks and pull and everything, because she did have a family that had some pull, I think. But she went and spent one or two years doing acting classes instead of doing no any more. work. And then she came mm. back and did three or four amazing films like Rear Window. I don't remember if you've seen Rear Window. Long time ago, yeah. And she did, you know, for a few years, she did a number of films and, and like three or four or five of them are hugely, you know, iconic films. And then she became the Princess of Monaco and she, and, and unlike, you know, Madonna or others these days who like, oh, now I'm Jewish or now I'm this religion and now I'm this, right? You know, like every two years they change something to, to kind of, you know, get publicity. She spent the rest of her life mm-hmm. being the Princess of Monaco and she didn't do any more films. Mm-hmm. So I think that's mm-hmm. uh, interesting and unusual. Um, so she had a really amazing, amazing career. The other person in here that is just incredible to me, and I, I don't know, you may not know much about him, but hopefully we can learn more about him over time. So the, the person marrying them is the previous marshal, the person who convinced Gary Cooper to come and be the marshal here. And that is Lon Chaney Jr., <laughs> Yeah, I did not realize that. Yeah, and he had, so, you know, his father had an incredible career in the silent film, and then he took on from there, and, and he also had an incredible career. Well, he was the, the wolf man, yeah, wasn't wolf he? man, and also the, what I think of him is, he was in Of Mice and Men, the movie adaptation hmm. of that, and he does an amazing role in that. He plays the, the kind of dumb guy, right, who, who, you know, accidentally hurts people. Oh, Lenny, you know it's a funny bit of synchronicity here. Let me just interrupt <laughs> briefly. Uh, I just earlier this evening watched a video on YouTube where, what is it, Ed O'Neill, who played Al mm-hmm. Bundy, he got that role because some Hollywood guy saw him playing Lenny on mm. stage in Of Mice mm. and Men, and uh, the freeze stuck in the guy's mind for some reason, and he suggested him to somebody else months later. <laughs> I, have to say, I wouldn't out. connect this very serious work about a, you know a mentally retarded man, however whatever phrase you want to use now, with with Al Bundy. <laughs> but I I guess maybe retarded has a connection there. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was funny indirectly. Maybe he touched on that because he said when he auditioned. All the other guys who had auditioned, they were like over the top, you know, sort of full of this latent rage, you know, and always, you know, emotional. And and he did it as more of a resigned, defeated kind of character, <laughs> which, you know, if you watched Married with Children, that mm-hmm. uh, that often describes Al Bundy. But it worked uh, in the audition, so... Uh, there you go. Well, I mentioned there's a lot to talk about. I, I think we've already maybe gone longer than the length of the film. So. <laughs> uh, but, uh, okay. So, um, <laughs> so, let me back up here to where we were. So, we have people getting married. And while they're getting married, the barber in town is, you know, shaving some guy. And a bunch of guys on horses. Uh, well, the three we saw earlier. So, this is Ben Miller, Pierce Miller, and Colby Miller. They're all brothers ride by and the barber can't really believe it's actually them so the brothers make their way to the train station and when i say station you know it's a tiny little building next to the train tracks because this is a very small Mm. town and they want to know from the person there if the train is on time 
And, you know, the guy in the office knows who they are, and he's clearly shaken. The train is going to arrive at noon, so the whole film is based around that. We had a little bit about that in Outland, although uh, this starts it out from the beginning, and Outland doesn't start its countdown until, like, halfway through the film or something. Yeah, Outland, I think, covers the space of a few days. Yeah, so there was, like, 60 hours. So, literally, as we said, it's real time. We're, we're like, 90 minutes to the train coming, where in Outland... Halfway through the movie, it was then 60 hours to, to them coming. Yeah. So the Miller brothers sit down outside the station to wait for the train. And basically through the whole movie, they just sit there drinking, waiting for their, their brother to show up. And uh, the guy in the office runs off to alert the people. And now the marriage ceremony is over. And Kane and Amy go into another room and smooch. But everyone comes in the room as there's one more ceremony for Kane to turn over his marshal's badge. And <laughs> the thing here is that the new marshal won't show up until tomorrow. So he's a little bit nervous if he turns in his badge now. What if something happened between now and tomorrow? But, you know, what's the likelihood of that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's he's not for it, but the town council or whatever, you know, they're they're like, eh, take a break. You earned it. Nothing's going to happen in 24 <laughs> yeah. hours. Or the next hour. <laughs> Yeah. And Kane mentions that his new wife is a Quaker and she's probably going to want him to be running a store. Quakers were a significant thing at this time because they were the primary anti war folks, right? And also, and, and uh, Ken Burns has a really interesting documentary about them. I think he calls it Shakers. Uh, they were known as Shakers because they would dance, you know, when they were worshiping. But they also had this amazing architecture and furniture. Well, I think I think Quakers and Shakers were two different things, but I'm not certain. I could be wrong. Yeah, I think they were the no. same. But it was- Here in Northeast Ohio, we have both Quaker Square and Shaker Heights. <laughs> well, so they, might, they might be slightly the different things, but I think they both come from the Quaker tradition. And the Quaker... Yeah, they're both religious Yeah, and the Quakers yeah. had this amazing architecture and furniture because they... They believed in a very sparse, minimalist thing, and they, but but also it was beautiful. Like they would do these staircases, you know, that that wrapped around and went up, and were were amazing. I mean, so even though it was supposed to be minimalist, it was actually also very beautiful work. Mm-hmm. They did. Have, <laughs> I did a post about this once because it was like, oh, you know. Um, you know, I'm a, I worked for C. Jobs. I'm a fan of minimalism and you know beauty and all this. I can, and you know, your religion is anti-war and all this. I can sign on. And then, then it's like, oh yes, and absolutely no sex. And like, well, I'll call you back. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be the yeah. Shakers. I think that might be. Uh, I'm. Yeah, I don't know, but it's. Yeah, it, that's certainly not. Uh, not an appealing uh, selling point for a religion, <laughs> not for most people. But before Kane and his wife can head out on their honeymoon, the train guy comes in with a telegram, and uh, Frank Miller has been pardoned and released from prison. <laughs> and he's on his way <laughs> on the noon train, and his people are waiting at the station. If, if there's one thing I would really change about Outland in relation to this movie— is that the evil people who are coming in to shoot him in the last half of the movie, they have no personality. We don't know who they are. You know, there's no real setup for them. 
But in this movie, even though mm. we don't see him until the last few minutes of the movie, Frank Miller has a big presence, right? I mean, everybody has a mm-hmm. relationship with him, a past with him. It's coming up all the time. So we know exactly who he is long before he shows up. Right. So this, the townspeople are like, oh, you two need to go because there's some kind of history between Kane and Miller. Oh, yeah. He, he sent him out of town to get tried for yeah. murder and the, the state uh, didn't find him guilty. Which well, he was guilty, he but they didn't give him the death penalty. Or, or they paroled yeah, him. So or the, so he yeah, was, yeah, so he was supposed to get the death penalty. The, instead, he was put in jail, and then a short while later, they paroled him. Yeah, I think he was in jail for five years or something like that. So the townspeople want Cain and his new wife to go away and, you know, be married and all that uh, before Miller arrives. And they agree. And, you know, so they drive some horses out of town and they pass a hotel. And this hotel is going to be very important. A lot of stuff happens in this hotel. And at the hotel... There's a deputy who we find out is Harvey. So he worked for Kane. And he's talking to his Hispanic girlfriend, Helen Ramirez. Harvey is Lloyd Bridges, who uh, we may remember from Airplane, who uh, he uh, he picked the wrong week to quit <laughs> drinking. Among yeah, and one of the other topics we want to do is the original Battlestar Galactica, and he played uh, an interesting role in that at some point. But yeah, so the... He's really oh, young here. In okay. fact, I kept feeling like he the, he looked like Harrison Ford. Like, you know, this is a movie that if it had been done two or three decades later, maybe Harrison Ford would have would have played this role. Hmm. Could be. I uh yeah, I I might have to look at it again, <laughs> but I, I I can I believe you. I'll I'll take your word for it. <laughs> so he's talking to his girlfriend Helen Ramirez, and he wonders if Kane is scared of the guys who come into town. So Helen Ramirez an is played by another amazing actress, Katie Gerardo, and she is a, a Mexican actress, and she had um, gotten well-known in Mexico. And then she did a an American movie where she, she didn't know English, so she did the her, you know, lines phonetically. And then she got mm. cast in this, and she spent a couple of months learning English intensively, and I will say, I don't. You, I don't think anyone would know that she did not know English a couple months before this film. I mean, she really pulls it mm-hmm. off. Yeah, she uh, she seems to be understanding everything she's saying, and just a striking woman too. I mean, uh, really a, a good cast. One of the most compelling characters in the movie, and she had a really great career and got to do lots of stuff after this, but. Uh, and also, I think, is you know, if anything, and I didn't see anything about this, but to me, if anything was subversive about this film, having this Hispanic woman who is completely in control of her career and her life, and, you know, even having, as we'll see, the white men around her respect her, I think was a really, really mm-hmm. interesting aspect of this film. Yeah, and she does get a line of dialogue uh, where, where she quickly references uh, the fact that this town wasn't always an easy place to be a Mexican woman. <laughs> and, and, but, uh, yeah, she's a, she's an interesting little character and she's, uh, 
She's got a bit of a chip on her shoulder, and she's got uh, various good reasons and to have The other one, part so. of it is, I mean, you could call her a slut. I mean, there's at least three people in this movie that she has slept with, right? So, so, but, you know, she's also completely in control of her life, so you have to decide what yeah. you feel about that. Yeah, well, there's... There's Frank Miller, and there's, well, we don't know for sure that she slept with uh, oh, Kane. Did. He might she be did, above yes. that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He seems pretty squeaky clean. But uh, but then uh, her name's Mrs. Ramirez, so she's apparently a widow, uh, <laughs> one would assume. But, yeah, you know, that's uh, none of my business. <laughs> so, meanwhile, Kane and his wife are rushing off at full gallop into their wedding night. <laughs> I just thought it was funny. It just seems pretty obvious that, you know, Grace Colley's characters are like, we're supposed to go and have lots of sex now. And <laughs> and also, he's he's way older than her. And literally, I mean, he was like in his 50s and she, the actress. Uh, he He definitely does look. Uh, yeah, she was 21 and he was like 30 years older. So he kind of won the lottery on that and she wants to have lots of sex with him. But even so, he, <laughs> you know, he ends up turning the wagon around because he just can't leave the town to Frank Miller. Yeah. But also she's a Quaker, so she doesn't feel like he should engage in any violence. But, you know, he turns him around the heads back. And uh, oh, this is where, so this is where when the barber is told that Kane is back, he he tells his employee to start building coffins. <laughs> it's like we need we need at least yeah. three. <laughs> so that was yeah. Well, he says there's something like there there's four Millers and uh, yeah, there will be the marshal and the deputy or something like that. So uh, no matter how it turns out, we're gonna need at least two. <laughs> So Kane and Amy enter the marshal's office, and Kane now tells Amy that five years ago he sent Miller up for murder. And as we said, the guy was supposed to hang, but it was commuted to life, and now he's free and coming back. So darn those those liberal uh, states. <laughs> Soft on crime. And Amy doesn't feel that this is Kane's problem, but, you know, again— the new marshal isn't here, and uh, and also there's a little bit of history, as you kind of said, with, with Ramirez that he's not telling her about. So. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess we should just say for clarity. So Ramirez, I mean, she was with Miller, and she was with Kane. So part of Miller's problem with Kane not only is that he put him away, but that it's that he also was with his girlfriend at some point. Right. So. right. Now, reasonably, Kane points out that even if they leave, Miller's just going to come after them, which is probably one of his better better mm-hmm. arguments. But he says, you know what? We've been through this before. I'm just going to swear in a bunch of deputies, and it's not going to be a problem. <laughs> he tells her, wait an hour, and everything will be over. But she's like, nope, I'm leaving on the train, and you're not going to see me again. So she's not even willing to give him an hour. <laughs> mm. <laughs> not an auspicious beginning to a marriage, Joe. <laughs> yeah. And now, uh, and I like this scene a lot because the you know the judge for the town, who was the judge who put Frank Miller away, he comes into the marshal's office. He starts taking all of his judge stuff off the walls. You know, there's a flag and different things, and he's leaving. He's like, I'm not sticking around. <laughs> he says, I've been a judge many times in many towns, and I hope to live to be a judge again. So. <laughs> Then Amy gets a ticket at the train station. You know, these three Miller boys are hanging around, so she's uncomfortable. And she heads off to the hotel to wait for the train. 
And in the hotel, Helen Ramirez is having breakfast with her boyfriend, Harvey. So Lloyd Bridges, as we said. And he's a deputy. And she says Kane's probably looking for him right now to get his support. And he says he's upset with Kane for some reason. And then he leaves. And uh, we go back to the judge and Kane, and the judge is leaving on his horse, and he says, this is just a dirty little village where nothing important happens. Get out. (laughs) (laughs) Kane calls upon a nearby teenager and asks why he isn't in church, and the kid very reasonably says, why ain't you? (laughs) Which actually becomes uh, another plot point in the film later on. And he sends the kid out to find a bunch of people that he can deputize. And uh, the kid runs off, and Harvey now shows up. And it turns out that Harvey's upset that he wasn't given the job of marshal. So he was a deputy, and Kane was leaving, and it was kind of natural for him to be given the job. And Kane says he doesn't know anything about it, you know, the the town or, you know, whoever, mayor or whatever, made their decision. It's, It's pretty obvious that he's lying here. It's pretty obvious that he didn't think that Harvey was ready and he wasn't willing to support him for the job. Hmm. You know, Harvey's like, look, if you just give me the job now and tell the guy who's coming in tomorrow that he's out of luck and you leave, everything will be fine, right? Because uh, Frank Miller will get here. You won't be here. We don't have any problems. Hmm. But Kane won't do it. And Harvey believes that Kane spoke against him because Harvey is now seeing Helen Ramirez, who was Kane's girlfriend. And Kane's like, oh, I didn't know you were with her. Anyway, it's only an hour until Frank Miller shows up, so we shouldn't be talking about this stuff. Uh, But he refuses to recommend Harvey for the job, so Harvey quits. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the themes here is is as upstanding and a hero and everything that Kane is, he won't do anything to improve his situation, right? He won't budge an inch to get that would even though that would like double or triple the number of people who are supporting him yeah he, he doesn't think harvey's right for the job so he's not going to recommend him that's that's it <laughs> so back in the hotel room helen ramirez laughs at harvey for thinking his plan would work you know the proposal he made to kane and he questions her about her relationship with kane and then we this is where also we find out she had a relationship with frank miller And Harvey warns her that Miller's going to be after her, but she says she can take care of herself, and Harvey leaves for good. Meanwhile, Amy is in the lobby of this hotel, and she asks the clerk if she can wait until the train comes. And the clerk is excited that some action is coming. So, Yeah, well, we'll see there are various people in town who are positively enthusiastic about all this uh, business to come (laughs) here. And speaking of which, at the marshal's office, you know, Kane is sitting there and a guy comes in and he's all enthusiastic and he's ready to sign up. And he's, you know, I love how you cleaned up the town and we got rid of all these people. So how many others are with us? And (laughs) Kane was like, nobody. (laughs) And back at the hotel, a businessman comes into Helen Ramirez's room and she's getting out. So she offers for him to buy out her store, but it's like twice as much as he can afford so they actually come to a pretty good deal. She's like, okay, pay half now and pay half later. And he's very appreciative. And again, this is something I think uh, very unusual for a film with this time. So here's this older white man who's, you know, really uh, thanking this Hispanic woman for how she's supported him and helped him out and, you know, let him be part of her, her business ventures. Mm-hmm. 
And Kane now enters the hotel lobby. <laughs> this is a pretty funny bit, you're right. Because he's coming to see Ramirez, but when he walks in, he sees his wife sitting there. So he thinks his wife, because she's at the hotel instead of the train station, has decided to stay. And she thinks, because he's come to where she is, that he's decided to give up and leave. So they both hug each other, <laughs> thinking that uh, that they both changed their mind. And then it turns out that's not true. Neither of them has changed their mind. And then uh, some more funny stuff here. Kane asked that hotel clerk if Helen Ramirez is in. <laughs> the clerk is just this total asshole because, you know, Kane's wife is sitting right there and the clerk's. The clerk says she's in and Kane starts to go up the stairs and the clerk says, do you think you can find her room? <laughs> and uh, Amy is not a moron. She notices this exchange. And it's clear that she didn't know sort of Kane's past you know, sexual history. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I noticed here, and I don't know how significant it is, probably not very, but the stairs going up to her room from the front desk, they're aligned to the front desk similarly as the stairs going up to Alma Garrett's room and Deadwood. <laughs> um, so I don't know if this influenced that or if it was just, you know, the way hotels were laid out back in those days. I don't know, but uh, but I, it's, a, it's an easy thing to notice if you've seen a lot of Deadwood. <laughs> so Kane comes into Ramirez's room, and she's mad at him, and he warns her what Miller might do to her. And she tells him if he's smart, he'll get out too, but he says he can't. And then he leaves, and he walks past his new wife in the lobby who's just sort of staring at him. <laughs> One of the things I do appreciate about this film is that even though Kane is the absolute unbending, upstanding hero in the movie, he's got his own past. He's got his stuff like this. I mean, this, you know, it doesn't make him look great, right? So he's not hes not a perfect person. <laughs> well, he's hes not... He's not always warm, and especially not to people who have disappointed him. He's always courteous, uh, you know, unless things have gotten to the point of violence or just outright insult. But, uh, you know, as people tell him they're not going to help him out, you know, he's, he's usually very brusque, like, all right, go home now. <laughs> but I mean, you know. He's had a girlfriend out of wedlock, as we'll say, et cetera. So he, he's not, you know, the he's not a Quaker. <laughs> there, 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 there is no um, internal evidence in this movie that I can recall that uh, that he is anything other than a virgin. <laughs> well, okay, you can you can go with that. I, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, you never know. <laughs> and now, well, and now just to prove you wrong, you know, Amy goes to the clerk and asks who Ramirez is because she doesn't, you know, she doesn't know who this woman in the hotel is. And he explains that uh, she was a friend of Kane's and she was a friend of Miller's and and all that. So you can take that how you want, but <laughs> maybe maybe yeah. they just played card games together. I don't know. Yeah, you know, talked about uh, current events yep. and so forth. And the clerk says he doesn't like her husband, as this place was always busy when Miller was around. So he and, you know, the bartender had the same thing, right? Which is, yeah, I mean, these are bad guys, but everybody likes them, and it's a party, and we get more business you know, when they're around. 
<laughs> now at the train stop, one of the bad guys announces, I think it was Ben Miller, announces he's going to go get some liquor. And he's, not that they haven't been sitting there drinking, you know, the whole time. And he's warned to stay away from Kane for now. So it's clear that they want to let Frank Miller take out Kane. Harvey comes into the bar and the barkeep realizes he doesn't have his tin star on, which also is a reference because it wasn't the original source for this, but once they worked out the plot, it was so close to a short story called Tin Star that they bought the rights to the story. Ah. And so when he says you don't have your tin star on, it's kind of a reference to that. Hmm. Then, you know, Ben Miller enters the bar, and everyone's excited to see him. They're all patting him on the back and everything. Hey, you know, it's been a while. Hey, and and they're acknowledging that things are probably going to get uh, interesting tonight. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Well, not even tonight, in the next, you know, 40 minutes or so. Because it's now 1120. Yeah. And Kane comes back to his office, and he picks up some extra badges because <laughs> he's going to need a lot of badges to hand them out to all the people who are going to volunteer. <laughs> and he leaves to find some recruits and he encounters Ben Miller leaving the bar and they kind of look at each other and move on. And he goes into the bar and overhears the barkeep wagering on how long he's going to live once Frank Miller shows up. And this really upsets him and he punches the barkeep. And then the barkeep's like, look, you know, you've got a badge and a gun that was uncalled for. And Kane admits that he was wrong to do it. And then he asks the people in the bar who will join him. Because uh, it turns out, you know, they went through all this before, which is what got Frank Miller put in jail. And so lots of people signed up and helped out and everything. But this time nobody wants to sign up. And they point out that, well, the last time you had six deputies and we were helping out. And it was going to be a big group, you know. But now you basically have nobody and, you know. So he leaves the bar and he heads to the house of a friend. <laughs> so... This friend turns out to be Harry Morgan. So I don't know if you're familiar with him, hmm. but... Yeah, from MASH. That's what I knew him from. He was one of the captains of MASH, but also he was the sidekick in Dragnet. <laughs> hmm, okay. <clears throat> I have seen some clips of uh, that. I can picture that. And if you yeah. ever watch Duckman, hmm. they basically are redoing Dragnet then, so they have the character in this. Duckman. Oh, you know, oh, it's it's hmm, a okay. anime. It's a really funny anime. If oh my god, it is filthy. So if you don't know Duckman, we'll have uh, to watch it because it will it will meet. I'm sure your your sense of humor. It's really funny. <laughs> really filthy. Uh, 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 all right, very good. Harry Morgan sees Kane coming, and he tells his wife to tell Kane that he's not in, and then he rushes off. And she makes a lame excuse to Kane that her husband's at church, and he's like, well. He went to church without you, and she's like, well, I'm getting dressed. I'll go to church in a bed. But, you know, he figures out what's going on, you know. Yeah. And then uh, he heads toward the church. So I think there's an interesting thing here, a uh, progression, which is he starts at the lowest, right? He goes to the bar to get help, and nobody helped him. Mm. Then he goes to his friend, and his friend won't help him. And his next thing is to go to the church. So I think it's kind of interesting how he's sort of – progressing up the ladder of, you know, respectability. <laughs> yeah. But before he can get to the church, a drunk guy with one eye who was, who was in the bar approaches, and he wants to help him out, and he wants to join him. He can barely stand up. So <laughs> he's clearly useless, and Cain lets him down easy by saying he'll let him know if he's needed. And then he gives him some money to buy a drink. So clearly, since we're talking, you know, 
less than 40 minutes now until the bad guys show up. He's not anticipating this guy's going to be useful. Now we see Harvey coming into Helen Ramirez's room, and she's packing up, and he realizes she's leaving, which upsets him, because he thinks she's leaving with Kane. And she says, no, but she really has to stick in the dagger. She's like, but Kane is a man, and you're not a man, and you have a long way to go, and I don't think you'll ever actually be a man. So she really, really <laughs> kind of sticks it to him. Yeah, yeah, not letting them down gently. And she says Kane's going to be dead in half an hour, and no one in this town will do anything about it, so she's going to leave this town. And this is a little, you know, a little questionable, because he grabs her and kisses her against her will, and she says no one puts hands on her that she doesn't want, and she doesn't want it from him anymore. And he tries to kiss her again, and she slaps him. So, you know, it's not not a good situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, uh, he really... Uh, there are various things that uh, we we get an increasingly strong idea that Kane was exactly right in not thinking this man was uh, ready to be a marshal. <laughs> and that's the end of the first half of the movie. All right, so Kane gets into the church and uh, he has to uh, make a deal sort of with the pastor. He has to sort of prove that he's qualified to be in the church because he's not a church-going man himself and his wife is a Quaker, so she doesn't attend the church either. Finally, the pastor says, go ahead and say what you're going to say. And uh, Kane asks the congregation for help. And surprisingly... One man stands right away, and four more get up to join him. But then the <laughs> peanut gallery, the rest of the church, they start uh, kibitzing and, uh, you know, having second thoughts and second guessing and all that well, stuff. Well, and I think, you know, I think what's really interesting here is, and this goes on for, I don't know, five minutes or more. It's a pretty long sequence of them debating things. And I think everybody has pretty good points, right? Because... Part of it is that people in the town are, or people in the church are saying, look, we supported you last time, but now this is really about you and him having the same girlfriend or whatever. It's not really our problem. You know, some of them are like, oh, well, we're paying for marshal and deputies, so you guys should take care of things. Why should we put our lives on the line when we're already paying for you guys? You know, I think there's some reasonably good arguments in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the problem is that eventually the mayor, uh, while saying very uh, complimentary things about Kane, he also ends up talking all the townsfolks into not doing anything. He says, wait, you know, let Kane get out of town now <laughs> uh, while he still can. And then tomorrow when the new marshal comes, then we'll face Frank Miller. Which, on the surface of it, seems like a reasonable thing, but uh, but Keane isn't going to back down uh, in I that I think way. the mayor's speech is pretty amazing because, and it reminds me of the Shakespeare speech about Caesar where uh, Brutus says, you know, what was it, country, whatever, what's the one where he's like, countrymen, et cetera, we're going Oh, I come not yeah. to bury Caesar, but yeah. to praise Yeah, well, that's him. kind of what this is like, because he goes on for minutes and he's talking about how great Kane is and how he cleaned up the town and made it possible for respectable women to walk down the streets and everyone supports him. And you're like, okay, he's, you know, he's gung-ho for 
backing up Kane, and then by the end, he twirls it around to like, so the only good thing is for him to leave right now, and we'll all be fine, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he brings in like a... The prospect of outside investment. Who's going to want to invest in the town? Yeah, if, this, if everybody's yeah, shooting everyone. And also, on. he believes, and, and there'll be a future point I'll mention, the, he believes, like, look, if Kane leaves, Miller has no problem with the town and there won't be any problems, right? And I think that's a lot of people's mm-hmm. argument here is, like, you know, the only problem is Kane being here, and without him, there won't be any violence. Now, later, you know. Yeah, well, it sounds... Sounds like wishful thinking. <laughs> I mean, uh, we we have to presume that Kane had a pretty good reason for uh, sending Miller up the river in the first place. I think what's amazing about this whole sequence, again, it goes on at least five minutes, uh, maybe longer, but, you know, in movie times, it's a long time. And one of the things that some people were disappointed in the film originally, you know, they're going to see a, a Western where everyone's going to shoot each other. And... Almost all of this film is a philosophical debate, right? Literal mm-hmm. debate in this case where people are – we have several minutes of people just debating back and forth. And then for 10 minutes at the end of the film, we have some action. That's not what people are expecting, mm-hmm. right, when they come to a, a Western right. film. Yeah. Although I think it is a good setup for a film. Yeah. I mean, I think it's – well, well Oddland was similar. There was a little more – action throughout with people getting murdered here and there but uh uh you know it's uh they saved the end action for the very end and it's it's not like a huge um you know nowadays we have all these comic book movies where it's you know it's it's not even a climax unless you have uh three different armies going right, at right. it together and, the, and the other know. thing is between all the debating we get these shots of just the train tracks off in the distance, right? So we just keep seeing that at some point the train is going to be coming. And so that mm-hmm. kind of sets the suspense. Uh, and then, you know, yeah. Yeah. We keep cutting back to the same shot of the tracks going off into the distance from the depot and the three guys sitting there just waiting for it or smoking a cigarette or whatever, you know, passing the time. So yeah, yeah, it's sort of a constant, uh, constant theme there. Kane says uh, he says uh, thanks <laughs> to the mayor, and you can tell it's not the warmest expression of thanks. Um, you know, even though the mayor is trying to save Kane's mm-hmm. bacon, you know, and getting out of town is whether or not Miller gives chase. Uh, you know, at least in the short term, it's the most expedient thing. Uh, but Kane isn't going to do the expedient thing. He's he's the marshal of this town, uh, you know, de facto, if not formally anymore. And he's got to protect it. Sure. Oh, well, it's uh, it's his own little, uh, you know, stand on mm-hmm. honor, I guess you would put it. So leaving the church and walking through town, he runs across this group of kids. They're playing cops and robbers, you know, going bang, bang, and, you know, pointing finger guns at each other. When they see him, they fall silent and they run off. Then he goes to the house of the previous marshal, Mark is his name. Kane had sent a kid here earlier to ask for Mark's help, but Mark sent him away. Mark tells Kane to get out of town, and he says, no, he won't come down to the depot with Kane. Uh, he has busted knuckles and arthritis, 
And it doesn't need Kane getting killed because Kane was worrying about Mark. <laughs> so, you know, it's a, it's a fair argument, but it also seems a bit self-serving. Now, I don't remember. You had know. you seen uh, No Country for Old Men? Yeah. Long time ago. Well, Tommy yeah. Lee Jones plays what I would say is sort of a similar character. He's the old, almost retired Marshall, you know, observing all this. Uh, and it's also an amazing movie, so definitely one of those that I would want to cover at I some point. I enjoyed yeah. it. But yeah, it just reminded me, uh, this Lon Chaney character reminded me of him. When he was, mm. Of the Tommy yeah, Lee Jones Yeah, because he's sort of like, eh, okay, you know, I've been through all this stuff. I don't need to deal with this, you know. Yeah. <laughs> after after Kane leaves, uh, Mark says to no one in particular. Uh, he says it's all for nothing, Will. <laughs> it's all for nothing. So he's got a he's got a despairing outlook on life. I think. Meanwhile, uh, Mrs. Kane goes to Mrs. Ramirez's room, and Mrs. Ramirez, she's polite but understandably cool. Uh, because this is the the woman who's now dating her former squeeze. Mrs. Kane thinks uh, Kane's staying because of her, because of Ramirez. Ramirez replies that she hadn't spoken to Kane in a year until today when he stopped by. So Amy wants to know why is he staying? And Mrs. Ramirez says, if you don't know, I cannot explain it to you. And she goes on to sort of... Uh, chide Amy for not helping her new husband. And in reply, she explains how she became a Quaker. Then it involved both of her, her brother and father uh, being killed. And there's actually the, the movie Cold Mountain has something, there's a line in it, something to the effect of, uh, you know, it's, it's a woman who saw people killed in the Civil War. And she says something to the effect of, you know, if she if she could take away all the metal that men ever melted, you know, and forged into weapons, uh, she would. I don't, that's probably way distorted. <laughs> it was years ago that I saw that. But um, it's. Uh, I, th I think this is sort of a similar sentiment at work here. She's just disgusted with the very idea of war, mm -hmm. as I think many people do get and perhaps should get. So she's a Quaker because of her own tragic experiences that she had. Uh, this isn't something she was brought up in. This is something that she came to out of choice. And Ramirez uh, invites her now to wait in her room here in the hotel instead of sitting in the public lobby downstairs. So there's a slight bit of thawing going on here, it seems. Meanwhile, the fire deputy, Harve, Lloyd Bridges, that is, uh, he's drinking in the bar, so as we said, it's uh, like you picked the wrong week to give up drinking. <laughs> the saloon keeper uh, starts talking to him, you know, a very, uh, a very uh, two smart guys talking kind of speech, you know, sort of a nudge, nudge. Uh, yeah, I knew you, I, I knew you had guts, but I, I didn't know you also had brains. <laughs> you know, he's, he's basically complimenting uh, him on. Not helping out Kane, not going on that fool's errand, and this annoys the deputy because he's feeling a bit of shame. You know, <laughs> I like I like uh, his line over. here. It's something like, "If I can't drink in this bar without choosing my company, <laughs> I'm not coming back." <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he makes it very clear that he he doesn't want to talk right now. Out the window, he sees Kane in the street walking to the stables. 
So the deputy goes to check on him, and Cain is just standing next to a horse, thinking, and Cain uh, finally admits, yeah, he was thinking about leaving. It's, it was a moment of weakness. The deputy says he should go with that instinct. He starts saddling up the horse, and he even eventually tries to force Cain to get on, and it devolves <laughs> into a fight. Now, this is an interesting scene because uh, I actually spent a lot of time around mm. horses, not a lot, but some time around horses when I was younger. And I, one of the things I was constantly warned about uh, was the danger of kicks. You know, they're mm. very deadly with their feet when they want to be. And in fact, in Red Dead Redemption <laughs> 2, if you ever uh, mess with the wrong horse and get too close to its butt, you're going to learn a valuable lesson from that. <laughs> uh, so they're fighting right within kicking range of the, these horses, and the horses, you know, they're they're well-trained Hollywood horses, so they're, they're looking very agitated, but apparently neither of the guys was in a great deal of danger at any time. But for someone who is afraid of horse kicks, um, you know, there's a, uh, it's certainly a little bit of a disturbing scene, <laughs> you know, because they're getting pretty close And they to make it. use of that in John Wick 4, I think, uh, anyway, but where... Mm, I yeah, haven't seen that yet. Yeah. I'm going Some people to. get behind the horses uh, regret it. <laughs> so, you know. Oh, boy, yeah. Well, there's a, a character in Deadwood who meets that same fate, so I guess it's pretty well known that horses can uh, kick like that. What surprised me but, is uh, it, I was watching the um, reality show. There's a, a number of really interesting reality shows, probably from a decade or more ago, where they would have families spend time living as say, Victorian people or, you know, they would choose a particular decade in the past and they would mm. have them live that way. And was that like a, it was yeah, a PBS yeah. show or something, wasn't it? And one of them, you know, they they were supposed to start out with horses taking them to wherever and the person who was in charge of the horses was very nervous and everything. It was interesting because we see all these horses in old movies, but, you know, at that time there were all these horse wranglers around who were professionals at this and everything, but... The reality is, we say horses get very nervous, they can bolt, et cetera. So if you have a bunch of horses and a mm -hmm. bunch of people, especially who aren't horse people in a scene, it can be very dangerous. And, and uh, so they like entirely had to change around how they filmed the opening because they couldn't have all these people riding horses because you know, there was too much risk of something going wrong. And I just thought it was sort of interesting. Uh, huh. You know. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, they're, uh, they're big animals, and I've... Uh I've I've fallen off of them more than once, so I uh, yeah. There's there's a lot to be careful about with with horses, but they are uh, pretty neat. Now, the thing too. I thought was really interesting about this fight. So normally, I, I think in terms of structure of a film, at this point, the idea would be that Kane would lose the fight, right? Because you want him to lose, so that he goes into the end having been defeated and being vulnerable. So you can believe that he might lose in the right. end. But he doesn't lose this fight. He w wins, technically, right? I mean, he knocks Harvey out. But it's not a good win. Yeah. I mean, he is really beat up. He's bloody and bruised and, you know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Harvey really gets some good licks in before uh, before the conclusion of the fight. Yeah, he's dirty and he's bloody. Kane is, and uh, yeah, and the deputy Harv as well. Uh, they're they're both pretty uh, 
pretty much the worse for wear. But finally, Kane is the winner, and so Harvey doesn't load him up onto <laughs> a horse, and he's just able to leave the stables. Meanwhile, in the hotel room, uh, Mrs. Ramirez says she always hated this town, and she mentions now what we said before, uh, that this is not a good town to be a Mexican woman. So she's, she's actually uh, in some ways glad to be leaving. Um, even though, you know, we saw from her business partner that uh, not everything about the town is bad. But uh, but but she says she's always hated it, and I got to take her at her word on that. I think she says that Amy should get a gun and help mm. her husband. Yeah, I mean, well, she's pretty uh, severe about this, right? She's like, if he was my man at this point, I'd be, I'd be getting a gun and supporting him, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Cain is dirty and he's bloody, and he goes to the barber shop to watch up, wash up. Um, that was actually typically in the old west, a barber shop would actually have a bathtub where you could uh, wash up. He's not doing that here. He's just sort of getting the uh, dirt washed off his face and so on. But while he's here, this barber uh, works with a coffin maker. There's even he has a poster in. The barber shop advertising funeral services, so there's sort of a joint venture. Kane hears the coffin maker at work in the back of the building. Yeah, he asks about it, and you know the barber tries to brush it off. Ah, oh, you know we got work to do, <laughs> stuff to fix, and whatnot. But Kane seems to know what it is. He returns to his office next, the marshal's office, and the one guy who came in earlier to volunteer to help. His, his name's Herb. He's waiting there now, but. Soon enough, he finds out that Kane still hasn't managed to recruit anyone, so Herb all of a sudden does a 180, and, you know, he starts pleading, uh, you know, he's got a family and he's got kids and all that. And this is, this is where Kane brings out that sort of dismissive coldness. Like, he's not outright rude, but he basically right. says, well, go home. And he's already said earlier, like, or, he has a wife. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't have kids that we know of, but he has a wife, like, you know— so it's sort of right. an easy excuse, right? It's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But in a situation like this, it is typical to expect. Yeah. No, it's not unfair. One of the things I like about the movie is that I don't think anybody in this movie is wrong. I mean, I don't think anybody makes an argument that's wrong. It's just a question of how yeah. you weight things, you know? Um Yeah, but the, the, the guys who don't end up going with Kane, we usually... I uh, see them looking yeah, shamefaced yeah. at some point or another. Um, and, uh, you know, like this Herb, you know, the way he pleads, uh, it's almost like an Ayn Rand book, you know, when somebody is doing something that he knows is bad, but he's pretty much decided he's not going to do anything else than that. Um, you know, he just starts sort of pathetically pleading for his case, you know, and, uh, you know, why should you always be right about everything? And, <laughs> All that kind of stuff. This Herb has that same style of argumentation. You know, he's just piling facts upon facts. You know, oh, I have a wife. <laughs> I have kids. Nobody else is well, I think the difference blah, between blah, this blah. and Outland is in Outland, for the most part, except for the one guy, I guess who might have been kind of the Herb guy, but he gets killed early on, Montone. Um, everyone's just like, ah, screw you. <laughs> We're not getting involved. Like, nobody in Outland has any real moral quandaries about deciding not to help him. <laughs> yeah. And and that occurred to me actually just like a half hour before we started recording here is that 
It's probably one of the biggest significant differences between the two movies um, is that in this movie, he took Frank Miller to jail like five years ago or something like that. So he's an established figure in the community. And what's more, the community already knows he's really saved its bacon, even if there are some business owners who think that he was bad for business. Most of the community understands that Frank Miller was a bad egg and he needed to be gotten rid of. But in Outland, O'Neill has only been there at the start of the movie. He's only been there for two weeks. Uh, and they hardly know anyone. And the only real warmth we know of from any of the people, Montone seems like he might be a little friendly. Uh, you know, we the O'Neill's wife talks about that nice couple in the bakery. Uh, that may not even be a bakery on Io. That might be a bakery on the last planet they were working on. I don't know. But And then there's the lady from accounting who says, oh, if you need anything, if you need any help, <laughs> let me know. You know, so and they haven't made a lot of great connections. They don't have any history with the town, you know. O'Neill hasn't already saved the colony once from the gangster that's terrorizing it. Um, so it's a very different situation in some ways, um, you know, and it makes the betrayals and the, or, or if not betrayals, then at least the negligence of the townsfolk uh, in this movie, uh, it stings a good deal more than it does in Outland because these are people that Cain mm -hmm. knows and works among every day. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a different. I, I guess as the kids say nowadays, it it hits different. <laughs> so what are we? Oh, here we are in the office. Herb Herb backs out. You know, Kane says, "Go home to your kids, Herb." Uh, and it turns out that also in the office, um, you know, Kane after Herb left, he just sets his head down on the desk. He's utterly, you know, he's he's the picture of despondence right now. He's he's just given up almost. And the kid, it turns out, is in the office, uh, the youngster that he sent out earlier to try and round up people. He was waiting in here on the stairs, which have a solid wall between them and the room, so Kane didn't see him. But he sees Kane with his head down on the desk, and finally Kane looks up and spots him watching. And this young kid, he really wants to help Kane. He says, I'm 16 now, and Kane says, no, you're 14. <laughs> So Cain declines, even though this kid is genuinely eager to help, you know, and, and it's youthful bravado. He doesn't probably know the first thing about handling himself mm -hmm. in a gunfight or anything like that. But he's got the uh, presumed immortality of youth, you know, and Cain uh, realizes that, no, this is just a surefire recipe to get a young, inexperienced kid mm -hmm. killed uh, without accomplishing anything. It's not the kids' fight. It should be his parents or, you know, the townsfolks who are grown up and supposed to deal with things like this. So he tells the kid, no, no, go home. And then he starts writing out his will. Then we get a montage uh, of all the places we've been to, all the places he's gone looking for help, you know, the bar, the church, individual homes. And most of these townsfolk are looking pretty guilty, like they know they uh, they are being the people that Mr. Rogers knew they could be. <laughs> Miller's gang, meanwhile, we get a little clip of them in the montage too, and they're looking pretty smug. They're uh, they're uh, optimistic about the future. Everything's 
coming up roses for them. And finally, we see by the oak clock on the wall that noon is here. We hear a distant train whistle sounding. One of the things I really noticed at this point was how sophisticated the sound design is in this film. So between this montage of people and also him kind of, you know, walking down the street that's abandoned that we get at this point, you realize so only, you know, it was only about 20 years before this we started having sound films. And at the time that they went to sound, people were like, oh, we're going to lose the art of movies and everything, right? Because they felt that that mm. silent films had an art that film that sound would get rid of. And there, there's a certain truth yeah. to that. Well, there's a style of art, but, you know, there's different right. styles Right, so here you have 20 years later, <laughs> and they, they are doing such sophisticated things at this point. So between the montage and him walking through this empty town, you have the music, you have the sound of the town clock in the background, you have his footsteps. Well, and, you know, as I get more in, and, you know, we're working on the stop motion stuff and I, and I get more into trying to really focus on filmmaking things, you realize these are all layers of sound, right? None of these exist. These are all creative choices that they had to do for this that just a couple decades before mm-hmm. didn't exist. Like the technology didn't exist. The concepts didn't exist. And here they're doing a really subtle job. I mean, really the only complaint I have about the sound in the film is I feel like at times I think the theme song is too loud, but it kind of, you know, it's kind of overwhelming. But other than that, they do just an amazing job um, in all this, you know. We haven't been counting off every appearance of it, but they do use that theme song a lot, as they did in the Gunfighters (laughs) with the, you know, the Last Chance (laughs) Saloon. But uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It does. Uh, it's not a terrible song, and it, yeah, it's as earworms go. It's it's reasonably pleasant, I think. But uh, then it does have that sort of it's convincingly western. Mm. You know, like you could believe that it was something people would sing in the saloons when they got <laughs> drunk and maudlin. You could argue both sides of it, but it it, it works pretty well. And in fact, the the song is so iconic that I remember there was a comedy Western sitcom, I think in the 80s maybe, called Best of the West. And I, I didn't watch it. It didn't last very long. It was like a one-season type deal, if I remember right. But they actually had a joke in it. I, I don't know why I remember the joke, maybe because it was so corny. But uh, there was a guy in a bar who was trying to help a guy cheat playing poker. And so he was like a traveling troubadour type guy. So he'd walk around the table and he'd play things on his guitar like uh, he's bluffing with a pair of sevens <laughs> to the to the tune of the Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. But, you know, this, this song uh, has a lot of cultural currency, I guess you could say. Um, you know, it's a pretty well-known song, even among... Probably not so much nowadays as when I was younger, but, uh, you know, it's uh, known among a lot of people who haven't even seen the movie, I expect. But getting back to the other sounds, the train whistle sound, as I recall it, they play it at full volume like you're just on the platform at the train depot. But, of course, from where Keane is in town, he'd hear it more as a distant, subdued noise, you know, but they... They play it at full volume here to really get mm. your attention, and it's a, it's a good choice, I think. It works. 
So he seals up his will that he's been writing out. Uh, he lets Charlie out <laughs> of the drunk tank and uh, doesn't try to recruit him, just sends him off. And Charlie makes clear that his intention is go uh, right back to the <laughs> saloon. <laughs> but what can you do? Mrs. Kane and Amy and uh, Mrs. Ramirez, they take a horse cart to the depot loaded with a few articles of luggage for each of them. They pass Kane in the street, uh, ride by him on the cart, and Amy looks away. She won't, uh, she won't acknowledge him, but uh, Ramirez stares, and as they pass him, she even turns her head to look back at him. She may still have a little bit of a lingering affection for him, just maybe. And the cart arrives at the depot just before the train does. So as the women are getting out of the cart, Frank Miller is getting off the train. He greets his man, and he starts putting his holster on. They have, have it all waiting for him, his holster and his pistol. Ramirez and Amy are getting onto the train, and uh, Frank Miller exchanges a glance with Ramirez as she gets on the train, and for just a moment, we think maybe he's going to make a big deal, you know, go after her or something. But it ends up that he just dismisses her finally, and uh, the gang heads into town. And he's, I mean, there's no question about the plan or anything. He's just like, okay, you know, let's do this thing, right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's get moving. Yeah. <laughs> Back in town, Kane looks around the street, and the whole town is just deserted. There's nobody anywhere And this is where streets. I was talking about those that whole soundscape they do of kind of even though it's deserted there's all this sound between the soundtrack and the sound of the clock and and the sound of his footsteps you know and it's just really kind of well mm -hmm. well done and put together yeah right. so he gets up to a corner of a building and he stands just in front of the corner so that he's visible from the street still and one of the gang members breaks a window and he steals something, and it, it looks to me like a woman's bonnet. Well, so sure I looked exactly into this a bit, uh, and I actually think this is an important moment that most people have not commented on. So I don't know why. So I actually had to ask ChatGPT, what did he steal? I was really confused about it. And you're right. It was a woman's mm -hmm. bonnet. And to me, the important point here, but I asked ChatGPT if other people commented on this, and it, and it said no. So either I'm brilliant or, or yeah. dumb, you know, one of the two. But <laughs> the thing <laughs> is, the town has argued if Kane isn't here, there's not going to be a problem, right? Everyone's just going to have a party mm -hmm. and nobody's going to get shot. Well, when yeah. he breaks the window and steals this, what I heard Kane say was something like, not yet. Don't do that yet. And mm. my interpretation of this is the plan is once they take out Kane, they're going to go crazy, right? They're going to just mm. rob everything and, you know, et cetera. Oh, so it was Miller yeah, who said sorry, that. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah. so that, that was my interpretation of this line. But this is only a couple of seconds. Okay. It's a little hard to interpret. You know, I wish they'd been a little clearer about right. it. But if I'm right about that, yeah. it really – it it puts a spin on the whole idea of like, oh, well, if Kane just went out of town, there wouldn't be a problem, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, it 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 would emphasize that uh, what, what Kane has anticipated is exactly what's going to happen. Frank Miller is going to rule the town with an iron fist mm. and so forth. But for now, all they've stolen is a woman's <laughs> bonnet. They've just smashed one window and stolen the bonnet. They pass by him as they walk down the street, and he calls out Miller, and the gang fires on him instantly as soon as they see him there. But 
he manages to kill one, avoid their bullets, and he ducks down the alley uh, near the corner he was standing Yeah, the funny thing for me here was I was going to make a joke because I would be like, well, if I were him, I'd get on a roof and shoot them in the back and, you know, do every – you know, skullduggery thing I could. I wouldn't do a face because I'd kind of I'd forgotten. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen the film. I forgot how it went. Well, and it turns out he pretty much does what I said, right? He gets in hiding immediately and goes up to the second floor of a barn. And, oh, you know, yeah. he's not like, it's not that other kind of, uh, th- you know, the, where I think this is more of the Clint Eastwood ones, right? Where you stand in the middle of the town, in the middle of the street, and then shoot at each other. Right, and so I, I appreciated right. that he acted much more like I would act. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, this is this is definitely more a guerrilla warfare yeah. <laughs> style of battle that he's embarking on here. On the train, Amy, Kane's new wife, she hears this gunfire. And finally, she gets up and leaves just before the train departs. As she's... Getting off the train, she hasn't even gotten past the locomotive before it's it's moving out already. She gets out of town and she sees the dead gangster in the yeah, street. I think at first she thinks it's her. It might be her husband, right? She kind of comes up. Yeah, on see if yeah. She's yeah. not certain, but uh, it doesn't have his vest. He's been wearing this dark vest all through the movie, so that makes him a little identifiable. She looks around anxiously and she heads into a building, which uh, is the. The marshal's office. Meanwhile, Kane is skulking around the back alleys and backyards of town, and he he heads into a barn. Someone in the Miller gang spots him going into the barn, and uh, his arm is grazed by a bullet, which, uh, all things considered, he's gotten off pretty lightly uh, so far, uh, <laughs> bullet-wise. Because there, there's been a, a few shots. Well, you know, he had the four guys uh, shooting at him when he met him on the street. And now running into the bar, and he's got one guy spotting him. Uh, and all he's got is a grazed arm to show for it so far. So he's doing all right, I guess. He gets up into the hayloft. From there, he can see through the front window of the barn, uh, the front upper window of the hayloft. And he sees a guy taking cover outside, uh, one of the Miller gang. And the guy then dashes into the barn. And as soon as he gets in the front door, he shoots upward uh, through the wooden planks in the hayloft, in the front of the hayloft. But it turns out Kane is up there in the side of the hayloft, and he snipes the guy from the side. Now there's <laughs> two down, two to go. So he's evening the odds. Frank Miller is out there, too, it turns out, and he throws a lantern at the barn, but it falls well short. It just lies there in the dirt doing nothing. But he throws a second lantern, and it lands in the barn in some hay, and then it, and Miller shoots it to release the oil and make the hay burn even faster. The barn goes up in flames in no time at all. Horses in there are panicking, and Kane just to, just to polish his halo a little bit, he rescues all the horses in addition to everything else. But this actually does serve him a little bit strategically because he rides out of the burning barn on the last horse. He's lying low against it to make a small profile target of himself. The gangsters do shoot at him, but they miss. Until he gets further into town and he falls off his horse, uh, the two surviving gangsters, they uh, they get close pretty quickly, even on foot. They exchange several shots with Kane, but nobody hits anybody. The marksmanship in this movie is not uh, what one <laughs> might hope. <laughs> It's sort of stormtrooper level. I recently, uh, I just got a book I want to read about how traditional 
you know, non-CGI special effects were done. I'm really curious in a movie like this where we have these shots where people are missing and, you know, hitting, say, the pillar next to Kane and, and the, you know, of course, the wood splinters off. Well, nowadays right. what you would do if you're not doing it with CGI is you would have a squib there, you know, an explosive. Mm-hmm. Did they have that then? Were they actually having someone shoot it? I mean, I think about there's a Kurosawa mm. film we haven't seen yet. It's one of my favorite Kurosawa films where the actor has arrows fired at him and they actually had expert marksman arrow people, whatever the right word would be for that, shooting the arrows. So there was no, you know, it was no special effects oh. or anything. So anyway, I, I'm really curious and I hmm. look up like, you know, how were they doing this sort of thing? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'd i be interested to know that too. I didn't think to look it up. So uh, he rushes out of the burning barn, falls off his horse, and then uh, when he gets into this next gunfire exchange, he ducks into the saddlery, which is pretty close to the marshal's office, where we know uh, Mrs. Kane is hiding. And she looks out the window of that office, and we see... In retrospect, perhaps a bit of <laughs> foreshadowing, uh, there's a pistol hanging on the wall uh, an arm's length away from her. You know, one of the marshal's well, pistols. You may be referencing this when you say foreshadowing. One of the things that credits I'll give them is that pistol has been in that location the entire film. So oh, it's not okay. a case of like they just happened to conveniently stick a gun next to her. It's like it's always been there. So I thought that was pretty pretty nice. Yeah. <laughs> Well, okay, I, I did not realize that. Very good. So Miller's surviving assistant uh, slash brother, I guess, uh, hides at a corner of the marshal's office, um, and both Miller and his brother are keeping an eye on the door to the saddlery where they know uh, Kane has fled. They exchange fire with Kane. He's at the window of the saddlery now, shooting it out through it. Miller's assistant has to pause to reload. He's got two guns, and they're both empty. And as he reloads, he's shot in the back through the window right behind him. He falls to the uh, to the plank uh, walkway outside the building, and we see Mrs. Kane standing in the window. Uh, so she's apparently, temporarily at least, renounced her quit. Yeah, so two things here. First, I, I was going to mention all the way through this in terms of now. You know, I didn't look it up. I was going to maybe it's different with the revolver, but I don't think so. One of the terrible things everyone in this movie does all the way through with their guns is they shoot one-handed. You need to uh -huh. shoot two-handed. You just can't aim with one hand. You're just firing randomly. And then you have the guy with the brother who just got shot with the two guns. So he's shooting two guns randomly. So I guess that increases your chance a little bit. <laughs> but it really would be better if you just put two hands on the gun and had a stable shot. So, mm -hmm. um, but also, this was hugely controversial and it was considered one of the negative things about the film was that the Quaker woman shoots him, which obviously they intended in the film, right? That's a, a, the fact that she was a Quaker, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it's not like they, did, they didn't intend this. And my, my person, so I understand, it's like, oh, a Quaker would never do this, so it was sort of a violation or, you know, it's an insult to the Quaker faith or something. My personal mm. feeling is, you know, earlier on, Helen Ramirez said to her, you know, if he was my husband, I'd be out there with a gun supporting him. Right. I think that what she came to realize was that, 
you know, her relationship was not trivial. He is her husband. Mm-hmm. And that it was a bigger thing for her to protect her husband, even if that meant violating her faith. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really interesting and important. But, but you know, there were people who took offense to it and felt that it was a weakness of the film. Now, what I would have yeah. expected, honestly, and it's a little weird, I would have expected Harvey to show up and do the, do the shooting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that uh, you know, the Han Solo thing, been, right? Uh, you know, the guy who disappears and then comes back and but he, you know, he doesn't. He's just a coward. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's just everything that we've taken him to be throughout the whole. Yeah, and none of them none of yeah. them show up. Not uh not Harvey, not the uh, not the guy who went home to his kids, not the old ex-marshal. Yep. Not uh, not the town. Although, drunk, as we'll see, not, once, once Miller's sure. dispatched, they're all happy to come out, you know. <laughs> to, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That's coming up real fast now. So, so Frank Miller's alone now. All three of his brothers have been shot down. So he goes into the marshal's office and takes uh, Mrs. Kane hostage. He brings her out into the street, and he yells out his ultimatum. You know, Kane's got to come out and face him, or he'll kill her. Or, uh, you know, or Miller will kill mm-hmm. Mrs. Kane. So Kane comes out. And when he does, Amy turns and starts clawing at Miller's face. Then this is enough of a distraction for Kane to shoot Frank Miller. <laughs> a couple things also about this. One, as it was approaching <laughs> being a video game, all I could think was, oh, this is a quick time event <laughs> in Spider-Man where... <laughs> <laughs> Where while they're holding the hostage, you have to move your cursor to here so that you can, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Now, in Red Dead Redemption, you'd be able to use yeah, Dead right. Eye for that. <laughs> but I also really appreciate it, again, especially for a film at this time. Even here, it's not like she's just sitting there helpless. I mean, she. it is the fact that she fights back that allows Kane to shoot him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She She's not completely passive here. She... She creates the window of opportunity for her husband that uh, eventually, lend, or, you know, ultimately uh, lets things work out okay. So, uh, so it's a good husband and wife team up. Uh, hopefully, that'll continue to yield fruits <laughs> for many years to come. So, as soon as Frank Miller is shot down, the townsfolk just rush out of everywhere, out of the bar, and they don't get right up close. To Kane and start, you know, slapping him on the back and shaking his hand. They're just, they just sort of want to be in the midst of where the action is, you know, uh, and maybe see if they can grab a little souvenir off of Frank Miller's <laughs> body and so forth. But they're, they're all crowding up in the street now. And the young boy that we've met before, he drives up with a cart. And this is, a, I thought, an especially touching moment. Um, it's not long. But when the boy is reunited with Kane again, remember the boy is the one person in town who was totally willing to help without any reservations. Well, there was also the drunk one-eyed guy, but uh, you know, he but he was a little more broken and wanting to prove something. Where the boy is, I think, like you say, the boy is mm-hmm. a little more pure. Yeah, yeah. When Kane meets up with the boy, he. Uh, he gives him what seems like a genuinely fond smile, and he, I think, I think he puts a hand on his chest, like a little pat on the chest or something. But basically, an acknowledgement that 
he was the one person in the whole town that Cain could rely on. As soon as he's done that, Cain looks around at the rest of town and all the people gathered around him. He removes his tin star, he throws it down into the dirt, and he says, Piss on you, I'm working for Mel Brooks. <laughs> and they doesn't say that. That's, that's a Blazing Saddles reference. Uh, and the Canes drive out of town, uh, accompanied by the ever-present theme song. And that's yeah, the, and I, uh, I think a really interesting thing about the ending is uh, so many films, maybe his wife would have said, oh, you can be the marshal or whatever. Or he would have, you know, whatever. He would have made some comment about being a, you know, shopkeeper after this. No, it's just he's disgusted with the town. He throws down his star, and they leave, and that's it. Like, the the movie is over, and I, yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can't uh, can't really blame him for being a little bit fed up with the town. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, like I said, I think it's a film that's interesting because there's so— many things you can talk about you know there's the politics and the political controversy there's all these actors some of whom were already significant like Lon Chaney Jr. and some of whom were going to become significant like Grace Kelly um, and Lloyd Bridges and you know Lee Van Cleef and, and all this so you know it's just just so much going on in this movie and there and there's so much you could debate and the fact that People came to watch a Western, and they mostly got a philosophical debate, you know, with ten minutes of, of yeah, fighting at the end. Yeah. You know? I don't know. So, what what do you uh, what do you think about all this? I liked it. It was a you know, it's a, a good movie, uh, probably deserving of its uh, you know years and years of uh, acclaim. I mean, it's it's fun as a Western. It's not so close to my own type of movie that I. I'd call it a favorite, um, but that's more a matter of personal taste and not not a, a knock against the movie. It's just not entirely my thing. You know, I mean, there's a lot I like about it. So I would say in that sense that it's worth watching. I definitely, um, even setting aside the, uh, the various historical aspects of it, you know, the Best Actor Academy Award and so forth, because... Uh, sometimes that means something, sometimes maybe less. But but in this case, I, Gary Cooper is a neat actor, I think. Um, he's uh, uh, really, I get the impression from what I've read about him that he, he conveys a depth in his acting that a lot of people didn't see as much in him in real mm. life, like they saw him more sort of down to earth, I think. Yeah, and honestly, for someone who's such a huge star, I don't know that much about him. I haven't seen that many of his films. Um, and here he's older. And I will say in general, you know, I always say I, I appreciate this. This is a film where, aside from Grace Kelly, who was like 21, this is adult. So almost everybody in this film is middle age, right? And and I always appreciate that because mm -hmm. you can see yourself in these people. They're not models, you know, except for her, you know, and, and maybe Helen, Helen Ramirez, yeah. you know, they're just regular people. And I always uh, appreciate that. Oh, yeah. 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 The, the casting uh, and the sets is good. Uh, you know, the production design, whatever you want to call it. I mean, Hadleyville looks like a nice little 
nice little spot to raise a family, <laughs> you know, as long as uh, guys like Frank Miller aren't uh, around making too yep. much noise. So, yeah, it's, uh, I, I liked it. I, I think um, for me personally, uh, for high noon scenarios, I slightly prefer <laughs> Outland, and for Western scenarios, I prefer Deadwood. Uh, but, Still, all that said, uh, High Noon is um, is a fun movie. I would say it's worth watching, yeah. uh, and uh, and the it it is certainly one of those movies that's so widely known and widely referenced that it's probably worth seeing just for having that bit of experience tucked under your belt. Yeah, I I would say I th- I like it more than Outland, as I mentioned. If anything, if Outland could have just copied it more, right? I mean, I think. If Outland could have had a history with the bad guys that were going to show up and a relationship, I would enjoy it more. Because that mm-hmm. one of my main criticisms and was if, these are just random bad guys. It's like if only the brothers in this and there was no Frank Miller, that's what Outland is, mm-hmm. right? And then, oh, okay, they, the random yeah. guys get shot and we're done. You know, I just, I just yeah, I, I felt like they were missing that, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and that element of uh, when the townspeople turn him down, you know, for Gary Cooper, it's it's a real uh, kind of a yeah, betrayal because he has and the history of the for town. Yeah. Sean Connery, it's a bunch yeah. of strangers saying we're going to keep yeah. being strangers. So I hate. So uh, I, on the one hand, I appreciate they didn't exactly copy it, but I would have liked it more if they copied those things more. If, you know. <laughs> That's yeah. fair. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think uh, uh, definitely worth watching and just fascinating for its place in history and, you know, all the actors and just uh, everything. So uh, pretty amazing. So next up, we, we totally know what we're going to watch, but we're, we're not going to tell you. <laughs> so you'll have to come back <laughs> next week and figure out what it is we're, we're seeing next. <laughs> all right. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Do 
saw today that Tommy Smothers died, uh, just died. Oh, I saw a headline about that. Yeah. I had my weird That's little story. So right after I uh-huh. left my ex and was trying out relationships and everything, the trans person that I had a very brief relationship with, they would go every year to this little, there was this comedy duo uh, that would do a, a holiday special in the Bay Area. And they weren't, you know, they weren't like a big deal, you know. They were, they were very funny, but they weren't well known. Anyway, hmm. um, Tommy Smothers was a huge fan of theirs, and I ended up sitting next to him, and we had a yeah, pleasant conversation. He was just a really nice guy, and he was really enthusiastic about this, you know, comedy duo, and very supportive of them and everything. So, um, and also, of course, he has his whole own. Interesting history with his his brother and their show and their show going anti-war and then kind of becoming banned and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, he was a really nice guy when I met him. (laughs) Yeah, neat. 